So as I said, we are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the Hebrew title is Kohelet, which is literally means the one who calls or gathers for the purpose of preaching. What's that? What was the name? Title? Kohelet. It's if you want to spell it in English, it's Q O H E L E T. Q-O-H-E-L-E-T is the Hebrew word. <clears throat> the Greek title is Ecclesiastes, okay, which means preacher. And it's derived from the Greek word often translated as church in the New Testament, ekklesia. So the word Ecclesiastes is derived from that. And our English title is just a transliteration of the Greek. Who can tell me what a transliteration is? Yeah, where you you take what it sounds like in that language and then you write it in your language. Yeah, you basically take all the letters and you just write it out in your language so it sounds as close as possible because not all languages have the same sounds, but as close as possible you just write it in English. If you look it up in the dictionary, not a whole lot of dictionaries have definitions uh, for Ecclesiastes and that's just because it's straight from the Greek. <clears throat> There aren't any other context for it other than in the Bible, but it means preacher. So Ecclesiastes means preacher. The author, uh, most conservative scholars recognize Solomon as the author. If you're not there already, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, that's the word Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the word preacher there, like I said, is the Hebrew word kohelet, or in the Greek translation, Ecclesiastes. Okay, so this is the words of the preacher, the Ecclesiastes. This preacher is the son of David and king in Jerusalem. So that narrows down, narrows it down a little bit, but flip over to, or you probably don't have to flip, flip a page to chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2, and I'm just going to read verses 1 to 8. This is the preacher speaking. I said in my heart, come now, and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched out with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Now, I know you guys went over a bit of history last week when you were looking at Solomon as the author of Proverbs. Um, so does this... What we read there in chapter 2, does that line up with what you guys went over last week as far as history for Solomon, what he did, what he accomplished? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> many concubines. Yeah, yeah, many concubines. 
right? But he did. He built great wonders. He built the temple. He built a house for himself. He built all kinds of things for himself, many of which are listed there in Ecclesiastes. If you go to chapter 12, flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9 reads, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So all of these put together, all the descriptions that we have of the preacher uh, point to Solomon. Really drives home the point that Solomon is the author. None of the other uh, sons of David are spoken of in these same terms. And there's really no uh, good reason to attribute authorship to anyone else except Solomon. So we can see Solomon as the author. And for the date... We can just know that he wrote it down sometime during his reign in 970 to 931 BC. I think the same time frame for uh, Proverbs last week. 970 to 931 BC, somewhere in there he wrote it down, probably towards uh, the end, but we don't know for sure. So before we get into the purpose, I wanted just to ask you a few questions and lead in, in a brief discussion just to inform our thinking on the purpose of Ecclesiastes. How many of you guys were able to read through Ecclesiastes this week, or knew to? I think Gary told you last week he didn't know what we were doing, so you should ask me. How many of you guys read it, or are familiar with it? What's that? Bits and pieces. Do you find the book of Ecclesiastes particularly encouraging? No. No. Why why not? Because it's gloom and doom. All is vanity. It's a chasing after wind. Okay. Good. Dead flies make the perfume. (laughs) Yeah, dead flies make the perfume. There's tidbits in there that are really, really good. But overall, it's... Kind of a downer. <laughs> Overall, it's a downer. I think it's just re- very reflective, and you know, of, it's that other end of the man, mankind, you know, the spectrum, and I, th- I find it kind of interesting. What do you mean by that? The other end of the spectrum. Well, it's, it's her opposite of Psalms. You know, well, there are a few things in Psalms that are, you know, are kind of depressive, but but really, you know, it's it's that it's that other side of humanity that, that wonders, you know, that, that even unbelievers will wonder, well, what's the use of anything? So you can maybe spring off, spring off this book as, yeah, you know, let's look at the Word and use it as a kind of a springboard, I guess. You know, you could do that. Because there are some real good nuggets in there about his conclusion, mm-hmm. know, especially. Yeah. Anybody find it particularly encouraging? I mean, I, don't, right. I, I, I yeah, it's not. I'm, well, kind of like Chuck, but I, it's not encouraging. But it is really, uh, it encourages you to keep an eternal perspective. Mm-hmm. It is the is correct true. perspective right. on mm-hmm. the things of this world. You know, like uh, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of mirth. Jesus quoted that, said that. You know. Yeah. Well, he ends saying, you know, that yeah. It's all about God. Yeah. 
And that, that's the truth. But he just doesn't say it in an encouraging way. <laughs> he gives us a bit of a reality check, right? And, he, and he's saying it probably at the end of a life of sin. I mean, the poor guy, you know, he screwed up for a long time. And he's, he's telling you, don't screw up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's not real joyful. Yeah. Let me ask you guys this. What gets you out of bed every day? Please interrupt me. <laughs> that makes me stay. Somebody, somebody said something over here. How long are you waiting around smoking? Your alarm clock, all right. Anybody else? Practically speaking, what gets you out of bed every day? Judy. I prefer to stay longer. The fear of God gets me up, but I'm still in a hurry to get done what I think he wants me to do so I can seek pleasure. <laughs> okay. So you're, you're ultimately living for pleasure then at that point? <laughs> End of the day. Okay. One of those Christian hedonists. Yeah, <laughs> Christian hedonists. <laughs> it's godly pleasure. We'll clarify. <laughs> what else? What gets you guys out of bed? No, that was Piper. <laughs> Coffee. <laughs> Do you really want us to be serious? <laughs> yes. A lot of times it's a job you need to go to that gets you on. Yeah, it's it's your job that you have to go to, right? And what? Why do you go to Why do you go to work every day? Gotta make a living. Gotta make a living. You gotta you gotta feed your kids, right? Why do you want to feed your kids? It's like you're playing if you don't. It's like you're playing if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so Solomon, he, he thought through, and this is what comes out in the book, he thought through all the scenarios of life. Um, he traced out every possible scenario um, in his mind, and um, no matter how hard he looked, how hard he thought, the end of everything was death. And that's kind of what is depressing as you read through the book, is he kind of brings us all to that reality check that no matter what we're doing in life, we all end up at the same point where we hit death. Um, there's, there's nothing special about us. The rich and the, the poor alike, they die. The king and the servant alike, they all come to death. And so as we read the book, um, that's, death is one of the major themes throughout it. And that's just what is kind of depressing to us as we read it is, you know, like Lori said, all is vanity. It's, it's worthless. And he points all of that out to us. And back to what Brett said, it really, he really does point us to an eternal perspective. Yes, it is depressing the fact that our lives are but a vapor, a breath, uh, but that just points us to having an eternal perspective. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. <clears throat> Uh, but if you're in Ecclesiastes, go back to chapter 1. He starts with verse 2. After the introduction of the preacher, there's a beginning poem. And the first verse of that says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. However... 
as we think that the, the book of Ecclesiastes is mostly depressing, the book of Ecclesiastes is actually meant to be encouraging to us. Okay, but we have to read it with the right focus. It should bring us great joy and encouragement as we read Ecclesiastes because it reveals that we have the only reason to live. We have the only reason, the only thing worth living for. And that is our relationship, the fear of the Lord, obeying his command because we receive God as our prize in the next life. <clears throat> Flip all the way over again to chapter 12. In order to put all this in perspective, we want to uh, read the conclusion. I was watching the lecture uh, that the professor did for this study just to prepare for this. Um, from the, the notes that we took from were his, Keith Essex from Master Seminary. And he talked about when you're just reading through Ecclesiastes, it's a good idea <clears throat> to read the end first just so you can keep that in mind as you read the whole thing because it does inform your, our thinking. So we want to do that today. Just read the end as we go through it. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every evil deed into judgment, with every will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. So after a lifetime of looking, Solomon came to the conclusion that the only thing worth living for was God. Fear God and keep his commandments. For the Israelites, uh, at that time, it meant something very special to them. And I'm, right now I'm taking an online class through seminary and where I'm actually going through this very material that we're using for Route 66, so it's a little bit of review for me, um, which is nice. Um, but in there, he talks about that many scholars now are arguing that the book of Deuteronomy is the key book in the Old Testament to um, understand the rest of the Old Testament and even the rest of Scripture. They're talking about how key it is. All of the, so many of the key aspects of Scripture are found in Deuteronomy, and that's one of the key books. And if we can wrap our minds around that, we'll have insight into the rest of Scripture. So I thought I would test that thought, put it to use here with Ecclesiastes. And it really does inform this conclusion we see in Ecclesiastes. So flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we are going to read verses 10 to 19. And there are so many, if you read Deuteronomy, you see this, there are so many passages exactly like this one, encouraging the people to remain faithful to Yahweh. Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 19. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, 
For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord had promised. So according to this passage, why were the people to fear and obey God? That it may go well with them. That it may go well with them, okay, that's one thing. What else? We didn't destroy them. Yeah, so God didn't destroy them in, in his jealousy. Good. Because he brought them out of the land of slavery? Yeah, because he had already showed his loving kindness toward them. Good. What else? What's that? Lest his anger be kindled against them. Yep, lest his anger be kindled against them. That goes along with what Wes said. Well, because he told them to do that. Because he told them to do it? <laughs> so they should do yep, it. Yep, so they should do it. It was right and good in his sight. It was right and good in his sight. Good. He had promised to give them land. Yeah, he had promised them. Yeah. He was faithful. He wanted the people to be faithful as well. Okay, may go well with you. A big portion of Deuteronomy, God repeats over and over how he is Israel's God. They are his treasured possession, and he is their God. In verse 15 there, the benefit of him being their God was the Lord is in their midst. They were to fear and obey God because God, God's presence resided with them. He was their prize, and all the other blessings received thereafter were temporary, vain, futile things. God was their ultimate prize, and he wanted them to remember that. When the people rebelled against God earlier um, in uh, Exodus, and he threatened to send them away without going with them. Do you guys remember what Moses said? If you don't go with us, then help me out as well. Yeah, he even said, just, just kill us now. If you're not going to go with us, just kill us now. Moses understood the importance and the prize that God was. If they were going to go to the land without God, that, wasn't, that was nothing for Moses. To Moses, God was the reason he was following him. Moses was not following God to get to the land. Moses was just following God because he was his God. He was his prize. So Moses knew what it took Solomon a lifetime to learn. The life was not worth living without God. So that brings us to the purpose. The purpose for the book of Ecclesiastes is to show that in spite of seeming futility, in spite 
of the seeming futility involved in man's existence, the wise man should fear God and enjoy life as the gift from God. In spite of the seeming futility involved in man's existence, the wise man should fear God and enjoy life as a gift from God. You guys need that again? Yes, please. In spite of the seeming futility involved in man's existence, the wise man should fear God and enjoy life as the gift from God. Because if you don't fear God, if you don't live your life for Him, then it is futile and there is no point. Could you do one more time, please? Yep. In spite of the seeming futility involved in man's existence, the wise man should fear God and enjoy life as a gift from God. And the theme, the theme goes along with that. The theme of Ecclesiastes is just life lived for God is the only way out of feudal emptiness. Life lived for God in the fear of the Lord is the only way out of feudal emptiness. <clears throat> Futile emptiness? Yes. <clears throat> Life lived for God is the only way out of feudal emptiness. Only way out of what? Feudal emptiness. Normally at this point we move into uh, the major themes, but I want to talk about the literary structure first uh, because it helps us interpret and read all of those things in context. What the point Solomon was getting across. And this goes along with what we've been talking about. But if you flip your page over, there's a liter literary structure there. The literary structure of the book consists of a chiastic parallel. A key is just the letter in Greek that looks like an X. And the, as you can see there, the structure uh, makes, the way it's formatted makes it look like half of an X. And so that's just called a chiastic parallel. And that's where all the points, the A's and the B's and the C's, they are parallel to one another. And they all build from the front and the end, the first and the last, they build toward a point in the center. And that center point is the main emphasis of the passage. So the A's, the first one there is the title, and it says the author is mentioned in the third person, and also the conclusion at the bottom of that, the other A, the author is mentioned in the third person, and so forth down the list, they are parallel. Uh, letter B is the poem about the brevity and seeming insignificance of life. So go back to chapter 2, if you're not already there. We already read a portion of this. I'm going to read the few verses we didn't. This is all the section of verses where the preacher, where Solomon is talking about all the great works he did. He built houses, plant vineyards, gardens, parks, uh, female slaves, singers. He built pools, watered forests. And this is what he says, picking up where we left off in verse 9. He says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. 
I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I ex had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity, and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So there, right off the bat in the book, he's just talking about the seeming insignificance of life. Everything he did was uh, vain and worthless. And the parallel point to that at the bottom there, the B with the apostrophe after it, the parallel point to that is wisdom concerning the brevity of life, just practical advice about life. And then so forth on down the list. There's the C, there's the D, where they're both poems about time. And then the E's, the F's, and the G's, if you notice there, they're all problems. Problem, problem, problem. The world is full of injustice, full of suffering and deprivation, full of dissatisfied people seeking wealth. And then at the center, if you'll turn to chapter 5, we're going to read that real quick. At the center of this chiastic parallel, Solomon emphasizes the fear of the Lord. So we normally pick that up at the end, but we see with this, which I think is important, this chiastic structure, that is the main focus of the whole passage. And usually we pick that up at the end. So chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So you can notice that whole section there is in relation to our relationship with God. And he speaks of vanity there. All of that is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So we see through this chiastic structure that Solomon's main point of the whole passage is to fear God. And we are to keep that in mind as we read all of it. All of these points, we're to see that all of these points, whether on before or after, they are all building up to the center where he commends his listeners to fear God. So that chiastic parallel just helps us uh, keep the main point in mind as we read Ecclesiastes. And that is without God, without fearing the Lord, keeping his commands, all things are meaningless. 
the striving after the wind. The fear of the Lord, it's mentioned there in the center uh, of the book, or the center of that structure in chapter 5. It's also mentioned at the end. And then I, you'll notice there's some blue um, parentheses with other verses. Those are just the other points in, in the book that mention the fear of the Lord. And I think there's some at the beginning that I mentioned. I didn't get all of them in time to put them on there. <clears throat> so he kind of, at the beginning, he starts on the side of human thinking, human wisdom. But after the center point there, there's much more of a focus on the actions as they relate to God and fearing the Lord. It's all leading up to the conclusion that the end of all things is to fear God, love him, and obey his commands. And that's the only purpose for mankind that is not empty. And not only is it not empty, but it should bring us great joy because we have the only reason to continue to live. So with that in mind, let's look at the major themes of Ecclesiastes. We've talked about a couple of them already. Is there any that we haven't mentioned you guys think are a major theme in Ecclesiastes? Quiet all of a sudden. <laughs> One thing you didn't mention? Yeah. We've talked about vanity, vanity and death. death. Is there anything else that stands out in Ecclesiastes? Is it? One thing is work. I like that work part of it that says um, it comes close to saying that of all the things that you can do, just working and being. Uh, content with what you have. Yeah, here you go. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun a few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. So in other words, don't do a huge amount just trying to make something of yourself like he talks about at the beginning. But whatever God's given you to do, do it. Mm -hmm. And then go home and eat and drink and enjoy it. Go yeah, you know, I'll, 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 I'll love that. I mean, that's that's real wisdom, and that's meaningful, you know. And, and he talks about work a lot. Yeah, he does. That's one of the main ones. Work, toil, struggle. That's one of them. And you also hit that has another one in there. Enjoyment is another one that he talks about a lot in here. So the first one, uh, Roman numeral one, is vanity. It's used thirty-eight times throughout the book. Five of those are in the first verse, or verse two, the first verse getting into it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanities. It uses it five times in verse two. Um, I've got it. Who would like to read just a verse? I have several one-verse passages I want people to read. All right, Bryce, um, chapter one, verse 14. Keep your hand up. Lori... Two, chapter 2, verse 1. Scott, chapter 2, verse 11. Um, Charlene, if you would do chapter 2, verse 15. Brett, chapter 2, verse 17. And Chuck, 
221. Two twenty one. Can I have two more? Uh, Rod, if you can do four four and Doris four seven through eight. So there have been many English words proposed to replace the Hebrew word, which literally means here a uh, vapor or breath. Okay, so our translation says vanity, but the literal translation is a vapor or a breath. Okay, the professor who teaches through this course at Masters says that it's, it's not a bad idea to just translate it literally. As you read through it, just translate it as a vapor or a breath. So if you did that with verse 2, it would be vapor of vapors. All life is but a breath. All is but a breath. Because our English translation of, of vanity doesn't give you the sense of brevity, the sense of a short amount of time. It gives you the sense of worthlessness. So I think it's important that we remember that that word in the Hebrew, it translates literally as a vapor or a breath, something very short and does not last long. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. If you try to grasp it, it's gone. And as, as you get older, some of you who are older, you can attest to this too. As you get older and older, the faster and faster time goes by. And the older you get, the more you realize how much life is but a breath. Why does it say um, vanity of vanities? What does that mean? Like vanity of vanities? It's just Green. emphasizing the brevity of it. It's just two times in that? Yeah. Okay. Like if vanity was on a scale? It would be really, oh, really, be really, really exactly. <laughs> oh, right. The worst kind of band. It's the repetition, <laughs> yeah, the repetition of the word. Do you want us to use vapor or breath then when we read these verses? If you want. <clears throat> I do. So, Lori, who is first? Verse 14. Christ. Go ahead. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is but a breath and grasping for the wind. Mm -hmm. Do you want us to just go ahead and... I'm thinking through my notes here real quick, sorry. Um, before we get into that, you guys are pretty familiar with Ecclesiastes. What all does Solomon say is vanity? All. Everything. 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 Yeah. Everything under the sun. Everything under the sun. Our work. Our work, Somebody specifically. Somebody else is going to inherit the fruit of our <laughs> Yeah. Somebody else is going to inherit <laughs> What else specifically? Everything we do on our own. Okay. Possessions. Possessions. Good. Beauty. Money. Good. Good. So who's got two one? I do. Go ahead, Lori. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vapor. So Solomon tested himself to see if he could find joy or fulfillment in personal pleasure. And that especially is gone as quick as a vapor or a breath. Who's got 2.11? Go ahead, Scott. Then I considered all that my hands have done and the toil I've expended in doing it. 
and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Good. So what is he uh, lamenting there that is worthless or but a breath? Uh, all, all of his toil and all, all he... Yeah, all that his hands had done. And Solomon had done a lot. If you think, you know, if you have lofty goals to accomplish things in life, um, he, he already did it. And he said, if you're, that's what you're looking to, to find joy and fulfillment, it, it is but a breath. It's here and it's gone. Uh, who's got verse 15? Go ahead. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? <laughs> and I said in my heart, this also is vanity. Or <coughs> what does he say is vanity there? The yeah, the searching after wisdom. Who's got uh, 18, or what did I? 17. 17, read through 19 if you don't mind. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all was vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. <laughs> Yet he will be a master of all for which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. You guys thought about that before? All the work that you do on the earth, you leave it... You leave it to your kids and you hope they're good stewards with it, but you don't know if they're just going to throw it in the trash can when you're done. You know, you're gone. We'll be in heaven. Right. There's no U-Haul following the hearse. No U-Haul following the hearse. That's right. I mean, we could dig a really big hole for you if you want, Chuck, and we could dump stuff in there. But no, you don't take any of it with you. All right, who was next? Uh, it might have been me. I had 21. Because read 26 instead. Uh, Sorry. You don't want me to read 21? That 26. was really good. <laughs> 21, <laughs> okay, read 21 and then 26. All right. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Yeah, that kind of goes along yeah, with what yeah. just talked about. It was still good. Uh, yep. So, all right. 20, verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So the last, last several of those verses just talks about the brevity of everything we have, everything we own, how we're all we're going to pass everything down to someone else who comes after us. And that verse that Chuck just read is um, a little more informative in that God has sinners working and toiling just to hand things to his children, those who please him. And we saw that specifically in Deuteronomy where uh, Moses told the people, he said, you're going to be taken into a land and you're going to be given houses and all these things that all these other nations have toiled for and you're going to be given those things. All those other nations, they spent who knows how many years building their cities and God just handed them over to the Israelites. Rod, I think you had 4-4. Four, four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from man's envy of his neighbor. 
this also is vanity and striving after wind. Good. So the vanity of work motivated by a sinful heart. Uh, Doris, 7 through 8, chapter 4. Again I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also his vanity and an unhappy business. So that person is striving to be satisfied in multiple different areas, specifically riches, says he deprives himself of enjoyment seeking riches. That is vanity as well. This vanity uh, that we keep reading about is what God was talking about when he cursed man in Genesis chapter 3. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 so we can read through this. Genesis 3 in uh, 17, 17 to 19. This is God, God speaking, starting in verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the first mention of any curse upon mankind. And it describes the very thing that Solomon was struggling with. All the toil and working for nothing, never getting ahead. And why? It was all for nothing, because man was cast from the garden, from God's presence. Everything is different and bleak as God's presence is removed, as men are removed from God's presence. So we see that in the curse. Without God, there's hard toil, a lot of meaningless work, humanly speaking. Without God, there's no purpose to anything. And Solomon searched and searched, but found only what was already written here in Scripture. That he was cursed to toil and to work and it was not going to get him anywhere at the end, it was going to lead to death anyway. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that we are doomed to live in a futile, fallen world. Solomon just puts it in such graphic terms for us. Kind of just punches us in the face as we're reading it and kind of wakes us up. But we do have to realize that is the reality of things. Nothing we do here on earth will last, humanly speaking. Paul spoke of this in Romans 8. If you want to flip to Romans 8 real quick. He quotes Genesis 3, 
here, speaking of the same struggle, the same toil. But this is where we find our hope as believers. Romans 8, starting in verse 18. Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and, ob and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The word futility there uh, in verse 20 that's the same as vanity in the Old Testament. That word that they use there in verse 20 for futility is the word that they use when they translate the Old Testament into Greek. Same word, a breath and a vapor. So Solomon is speaking about this time in between creation and restoration where the wise man finds himself in the period of the fall the period of groaning, as Paul says there. The wise man under the sun can only look at life before him and life after him as being subject to futility. We have to just recognize this is just a part of the fallen world we live in, but thankfully as believers we have the hope and the joy to look forward to a glorification of our bodies being released from the curse So Solomon gives us a bit of a reality check with all of the, the speaking of futility, the brevity of life. He gives us a bit of a reality check. But for those of us who are believers, we can find joy that one day it will all be gone. The curse will be gone and we will live in complete, perfect enjoyment in the presence of God for all eternity. So it's only for this life. There are three sub-points there. We're not going to get into all those. Just different ways that he um, got the brevity of life across, the point across. Striving after the wind, no advantage, no profit. Uh, just different words uh, used there for vanity on top of what we already talked about. Uh, but we're going to go on to Roman numeral number two, which is under the sun. Under the sun is the next major theme. What does under the sun mean? Under the sun. Under the sun. Yeah, on the, on the earth. Yeah, so it just encompasses everything. Every aspect of life. Nobody is exempt from it. Right? The Asian on the other side of the world is just as subject to the futility of this world as we are. I'm just going to read a couple of verses in relation to this. Chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 and 9. 
verses 3 and 9 say, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And verse 9 says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. No matter where you are on the earth, where you were born, what you do, you are under the sun, there's nothing new, and everything that he speaks of in here applies to everyone under the sun. The things Solomon is saying in this book are universal in scope, they're true for all of us. And we're not going to, that's pretty straightforward, we're not going to talk about that one um, in any more depth. So, Roman numeral three. Seven, all right. Got half an hour. See if we can get through this. Roman numeral three is death. Death. The reality of death is highlighted by Solomon over and over and over again. Everything leads to death. This is often what discourages people as they read it. Um, and I, like I already mentioned, in light of the further revelation that we have, death should not discourage us, but it should sober us. Each and every one of us, doesn't matter how old you are, each and every day you're getting closer to death. Our best days, most people say your best days are ahead of you. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that your best days are behind you. And that is a sobering thought. The days you have ahead of you are worse than you have had behind you. Yes, here on earth. Yeah, and that's going to be amazing. Yes. I'm sorry. No, that, that's, that's exactly the sentiment we want to think as we read through this. But that's what Solomon is saying from an earthly perspective. Our best days are behind us. We must live in light of the fact that our death is coming and we only have so much time left. So with that in mind, how does that practically inform our lives. If we understand that our best days are behind us, today is a better day than tomorrow, we only have so much time left, how does that practically inform our lives? You mentioned that what are we do when we first get up in the morning? When we place our feet on the ground, we should say to ourselves, today is a day that I serve the Lord in the things Good. that I do and say. Good. As you get out of bed, you put your feet on the ground, you consider what the Lord would have you do today. Good. Practically, for somebody else, what is that, how does that inform your life? Well, it gives you an eternal perspective because it, it puts it right there that this life doesn't offer us anything lasting. Yeah. Only God does. And we have that to look forward to. So that's where we put our hope. That's where we put our focus mm -hmm. on God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Mm -hmm. In Matthew 6. Good. And practically, just working that out in your life, what does that look like? Well, like, okay, so I get excited about something, and I start to get into it. And then I want to do it. And then I, pretty soon I'm seeking fulfillment from that. 
And then if anybody gets in my way, I get angry. And, you know. Not you. And, it, and, then, and then eventually, yeah, I do sometimes. And then eventually I get disappointed by it. And then I throw up my hands and all is black. And then along comes something else that's interesting. And then I get interested in that. And it, you could get on that treadmill forever. And this just keep, calls you back and says, no, no, no. You can, you can do that. It's fun. But there's no fulfillment in that whatsoever. Yeah, like, like Solomon said, it's fun as, you know, but it goes away as quick yeah, as a vapor. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fine. And, and find pleasure in what God gives you to do and do it. But don't seek any fulfillment in it because there's nothing. Yeah, don't seek any fulfillment in it. That's a good, good point. Well, I think it changes your perspective too as to what we're here for. You know, I was going to say as John Piper said, you know, we're here to glorify God, but the Scripture says more importantly than John Piper. You know, and and uh, whatever the Lord has ordained you to do in life, whether you're in law enforcement, whether you're the post, uh, the mail deliverer, whether you're the guy at the motor vehicle that hands out the license plates, you know, we're dispensers of God's grace to to, on a daily basis, obviously bring glory to God and to let His light shine through us, you know, and mm-hmm. like my brother was saying, it's not always easy, you know, because somebody says something or something happens and you kind of get frustrated, but just have that perspective on, you know, being a, a dispenser of God's grace or being, bringing glory to His name. Yeah, yeah, changes definitely should change our perspective. Anybody else have any thoughts on <coughs> practically what that looks like? Informing your lives that you only have so much time left. How does that change your thinking? If you mm-hmm. were diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, you had three weeks to live or you know, however long, how would that change your, what you do practically? <coughs> and that's what Solomon is trying to get us to think about here. If you only had so much time, which we do, and that's that's the reason we don't like reading through it because it brings that out. We only have so much time. And we have to keep that in mind. We should set aside the vain things that we spend time doing. Uh, we need to evaluate our lives, the things that we spend too much time and energy doing, the things that are worthless. I mean, as Americans, we have more free time than any other culture in the world, and we waste most of it. We have to evaluate the time that we waste, the time that we spend uh, doing things that are worthless, and we have to reevaluate that and um, commit ourselves to doing, spending time doing the things that will glorify God and build His church, because that's the only thing that's going to last forever. Um, I just wrote down a note in here just remembering Andy Nielsen's funeral and Travis talking about his last wish was he wanted all of us to know that he's wasted a lot of his time in his life and and the things that he did were good things I mean he built a good good uh, portion of the education system we have now for deaf people and he did a lot for the education system and the things he did was good but he lamented that at the end of his life And I don't want to be there, and I don't want any of you guys to be there. The earlier that you can get this into your mind, the better. That you enjoying certain things is fine. You know, entertainment is fine to a certain degree, but we oftentimes waste our lives away doing that. 
And we are going to get to the end. If we do that, we are going to get to the end with uh, much of the same regret that Solomon had in his life. I had, I had in my notes here, I forgot about this. I was just going to mention um, many people today um, have given up reality altogether when it comes to this. Uh, there's so many people, you would not believe how many people uh, spend their lives building fantasy worlds on the internet in games. They play as a character to level them up. They build their house. They build these mansions. They find weapons. They try to become greater and greater. They have, you know, their actual friends on another computer doing the same thing so they can play with them. People give their lives for this. They spend their money on this. And it's easy for us to look down our nose at those people and think, how could they waste their life on a video game? Well, Solomon built that kind of kingdom, lived that kind of life in real life, and he said it's still all worthless. You know, we might look down on those people for building a video game and the lives in their video game, but when we waste our time in real life, it's no different. And we have to recognize that. We have to recognize the stupid things we do in real life as what they are, and it's no different than those people that get lost in virtual world. So we need to examine what we do uh, how we spend our time, how we spend our lives. I know Travis, I think he encouraged the guys, was it Saturday morning? He's done it several times, just taking an inventory of what you spend your time on and just looking at what you spend your time on. You write it all down at the end of the week and you'll be able to tell real quick if that was a good balance or not. So as much as he talks about death, that brings it out. We only have so much time. What are we spending the time we have left on. That brings us to Roman numeral four. And actually, we're not going to spend much time on four or five, but I'll tell you what they are. Number four is labor, toil, and work. Labor, toil, and work. And that's used 34 times throughout Ecclesiastes. In and of itself, uh, work has no meaning in this life. You can, give, you can devote yourself to work, but in this life, it doesn't have any meaning in and of itself. We are called to uh, be good stewards, to work hard for God's glory. In this life, it, it does not bring us an advantage uh, beyond this life. Roman numeral five, fear God. And we've already read a lot of those verses already, so we're going to skip over that because we've already talked about that at the front end of this. Okay, after everything is observed, he challenges us to live, to fear God, live this life in the fear of the Lord. Roman numeral six, enjoy life. Enjoy life. And this is where we're going to spend uh, our, the remainder of our time Enjoy life. So I have some more verses. Who would like to read? You can read again if you want. But uh, Brett, chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. Bryce, 3, 12 to 13. Gary, uh, 3, 22. Uh, Karen, 5, 18 to 20. Uh, 
Wes, your wife, volunteered you. <laughs> what was the last one I gave out? 18 to 20? Yeah. 815, Wes. Two more. Uh, Monica, 9, 7 to 9. And Larry, 11, 8 to 9. So there are many passages in Ecclesiastes where Solomon commends the listener to enjoy the life that they have. Okay, but this must be understood in light of the main point of the passage, which is fear the Lord. So we are to fear God first and then enjoy life. Okay, we're not to enjoy life unequivocally um, without boundaries. So we have to keep that in mind as we go through this. The main focus of the passage, everything is pointing towards the fear of the Lord. And in light of that, we can read these passages. So 2, 24 to 26, Brett. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Okay, so it's only through God that we find enjoyment in this life. And that is precisely because we know this is not the end. God therefore gives us joy in the midst of this sin-sick, cursed world. Verse 25 says, Apart from Him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Apart from God there is no joy. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13. And also that every man eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Uh, read verse 12 as well before that. Is that above? I know there is nothing. Yeah. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. It's God's gift to us that we can enjoy our work. Enjoy even as monotonous as it can get. If you have one of those jobs where you do the same thing every day over and over and over again, it's God's gift to mankind to give us joy and pleasure in that. But it's only to those who fear Him and obey His commands, those who love God, that are going to love work no matter how monotonous it is. It's a gift from God. Ecclesiastes 3.22. Who did I give that one to? Go ahead, Gary. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So that's just along the same lines there that we should rejoice in our work. There's nothing better than to rejoice in that. Ecclesiastes 18, 5, 18 to 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment, enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So as believers, 
We're not to be overcome with regret and frustration with a world like Solomon was. Because we are believers and God has given us joy and contentment for our life, we understand that our portion is from Him. He has allotted our portion, whether we are rich or poor, He has allotted it to us, given it to us. The unbelievers dissatisfied and indignant toward their life because they don't fear God, they don't obey His command, they don't enjoy Him, they know nothing of the things of God, therefore they are never satisfied. They are dissatisfied and disgruntled with their life. Therefore they have no joy in their toil. So do you view it as a command in Scripture when it talks about it? Do you view it as a command to enjoy life? I didn't until I read or heard read five verses on so we all remember you know James tells us to be joyful in trials how much more uh, more so should we be joyful all the time we're commanded commended over and over to be joyful with the life that God has given us Uh, Ecclesiastes 8.15 and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil to the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So we are commended to be joyful because our portion is from God. To be discontent, to not be joyful, anything other than joy is to rebel against God and what he has given us. To grumble and complain just as the Israelites did time and time again. So no matter what our work is, no matter what our lot in life is, we're commended, commanded both by the Bible to be joyful. Ecclesiastes 9, 7-9. So these verses were called to. What's everybody giggling about? It's just funny. I thought they were giggling about enjoying their wife or something. No, it's just the meaningless, you know. Yeah. I think it's. It's all the days of your joyful in your meaningless. Yes, enjoy your wife. Enjoy your wife all the vain days of your life. <laughs> you know, I see what you know, I see what you're saying, and I'm not making fun of that. It's just the yeah. No, it is, and I, I did the same thing as I was reading through it. But it's it's that brings out the point of the perspective that we are to have. We are to enjoy what God has given us, but at the same time remember that it's all vain. It's all this life is meaningless. So just enjoy a little bit. What? Just enjoy a little bit. <laughs> well, enjoy it to the fullest, but yeah. it's not going to last real long. Yeah. The point is there, it's not going to last long. Enjoy it while it lasts, because it's not going to last long. Just like all the heartache that we go through, everything else in this life, it's not going to last long. Enjoy it while it lasts. 
So that one specifically tells us that we should find joy in um, our spouse, husband, wife, whatever you, your lot is. And then it goes on to talk about enjoying your work, even when it is frustrating, full of toil and strife. Um, we find joy in every circumstance of life because it is our portion from God. I think a lot of husbands and wives are going to be saying that. Yeah, I'm sure some one half of a spouse feels that way sometimes. Um, Eleven, eight to nine. Who's got that one? Larry, go ahead. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So we're to rejoice in all the years that God has given us. But it's interesting to mention that he says, the days of darkness will be many. Mm -hmm. We're to be joyful in life, knowing that there are dark days ahead. We don't fret the dark days ahead, but we enjoy today, however many days that the Lord gives us. Because that is our lot from him. And he specifically commends young men there, rejoice in your youth. It does not last forever. Rejoice. Don't waste the time that you have. Don't waste your youth following mindless, stupid pursuits. But make sure that you use your youth to glorify God in the things that he has given you to do. It's a good verse to share with non-Christians as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So no matter what we're going through personally, we have the mindset that we live in a fallen world and we suffer. But our suffering, as Paul said, will one day lead to glory in the very presence of God. We'll be returned to the condition before the curse where we enjoy God fully, without sin, without the corruption of the flesh. And this is the only reason that we can be joyful amid a life filled with strife and sin and trials, because God is our prize at the end. We just have to stay faithful, fear him, and obey his commands, as Solomon said. We've got a few minutes left. Um, I did have one interesting comment that, that uh, the professor made as he was going through this. He said, someone counted up all the words in Ecclesiastes, and he came up with, it's a list of, um, I think, 17 words that literally make up 21% of all the words in the book. <laughs> so 21% of all the words in Ecclesiastes are vanity, Toil, work, wise, good, time, sun, sea, fool, eat, profit, wind, death, wicked, just, portion, memory, and vexation. 
Those words alone make up 21% of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. 17 words? Is that what you said? Uh, I think it's 19. 19. And there's a couple... Um, there's a couple interpretive challenges, but we already talked about them just with the authorship and also the purpose. So in conclusion, um, overall the message of Ecclesiastes is a positive one. It's a positive note to uh, fear God and to obey his commands, and that will bring a blessing. Not blessing of uh, blessings in this life, but blessings that we will receive the prize of God himself in the next <clears throat> we see in Ecclesiastes on this positive note that God is the only thing worth pursuing. We enjoy the lot that he has given us, but he is the only thing worth pursuing and staking our life on. So if we are discouraged uh, reading the book, it could be that you know we've just been confronted with the fact that we're wasting our time, wasting our life. Uh, and we, it could mean that we need to repent of things. It could just be a discouragement from time past wasted. Whatever the case, we are called to look forward, as Solomon did, and just determined to live day by day in the fear of the Lord. So we talked a little bit about joy. Do you view someone having joy in, like, in life or lack thereof? Do you see that as a fruit of true faith in God? Yes. Yes. Thank yes. Galatians. Yeah, Galatians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. It's just number two on the list, right? Um, the believer is marked by uh, faith, trust in God, and being joyful in the portion that God has given him. Uh, somebody, and I don't. I think we often overlook this fact. People that are filled with regret and sorrow, and their focus is on self and this life. I don't think we necessarily look at those people and think that they're unbelievers, but that's a good indicator that they are. If they are completely consumed with their self and their sorrow and their regret for their life, they're not looking forward as God commands us to. They don't have the joy that God says in these verses. He will give those who please him. There's so many people out there today that claim to be Christians, yet they are filled with these things. They're filled with their regret and self-consumption about their past sins. And we have to help people. Um, we have to help people wade through that. We have to help people think through that because that's not the way a believer thinks. We can't overlook that. It's number two on the list for the fruit of the Spirit. Love first and then joy. We can't overlook that as the fruit of the Spirit. Okay. Yep. You said Deuteronomy was key to the Old Testament. I was trying to find the verse because it really hit me. It says, because you failed to have gratitude in your hearts mm. for all that I've given you, then all these curses that are mentioned will be on you. And you look at that, if, if my focus is not on God, then you see all the stuff that Solomon chased after. Mm -hmm. It was not a blessing. It became a curse. Mm -hmm. I, and I think that's what I found depressing about it. It wasn't so much that it, 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 
God was in there, but there was so much of man. And that is depressing. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was the part that was hard. It wasn't even that it, it's talking about the futility, because we have hope in Christ. It was just that there was so much focus on man and man's stupidity um, and, and futile chasing after things, and that's depressing. Mm -hmm. But there were those points where when, then when you have God and yes, yay. I mean, that's what I see in David that, that was so much different, that he always remembered God mm -hmm. and lifted it. And so, yeah. Yeah, and that's what, that's what I was going to close with, is we, as believers, we understand where Solomon is at at the, I believe, the end of his life here, lamenting his, his life wasted. He's at that point, yet he does recognize this is what matters fearing God and doing his commands. But it is depressing as you see all of the, the man-centeredness in the book, the depravity of man. And I think, you know, going along with what Travis is talking about on Sunday nights, that should give us a great compassion for those who, they're all unbelievers are stuck in that rat trap, just running on a wheel, and it's all for nothing. And it should, in us, create a great compassion that we are on the other side. We see, we know what Solomon is talking about here, and it should, should create in us, or spark in us, um, a great compassion for those who are lost. Because there's so many lost and hurting people out there that they, they're struggling with the life that, that they have. Uh, they, so many people on depression medicine nowadays, it's, it's staggering. And we, sh we have the solution. We have the answer. And so we should have compassion uh, towards unbelievers, and that should motivate us to, to share. So I'm looking forward to, I probably won't be here, but I'm looking forward to you guys as Travis uh, takes you around to uh, be that witness. Uh, we are out of time. We have... Three minutes. Does anybody have any questions before Brett? I was just wondering. Okay, so, did he believe in eternity? Did he did he understand um, anything about like the afterlife? The the Old Testament, um, and it's it's also questioned whether he was a believer or not, Solomon. Um, but they did not have as clear of an understanding of the afterlife as we do. That was God progressively revealed that over time. And we have a much clearer understanding of that. They didn't have as clear of an understanding of the afterlife. Um, they just knew that everything was going to be judged by God. They knew by God's character that he was going to judge all things. Because he does mention judgment. And yet, you know, it does say that Abraham was justified by faith. And so they, they had a sense that God was going to judge everything, but at the same time, people were justified by their faith. But they, didn't have a, they did not have as, as clear of a view of the afterlife as we do. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it just brings up one question. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Hey, Brad? Yes, you Mike. the conference? John MacArthur, one of the, he had nine points. And yeah, his nine, first message, he had nine yeah, points. He had the ninth, he's talking about suffering a lot of things. In there. Mm -hmm. But the last one, he said, future glory is better than anything. 
Yeah. Future glory is better than anything. Yeah. And what the thing, the in that message, one of the things that I loved the, the most was he was talking about suffering. He was talking about especially pastors, but everybody embracing um, their suffering as God's lot. Uh, and if you, he said that if you do not embrace your suffering as given to you by God, then you will fall on the sword before you reach the summit. And I thought that that was very good. So embrace the lot in life that God has given you. Be joyful no matter the circumstances. As Gary mentioned in Deuteronomy, be grateful to God for all that you have and have been given. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful for all that you have done for us, especially sending your Son to die for our sins, to pay the penalty that we might be reconciled to you, a holy and perfect God who accepts nothing less than perfection, that we have been given, we have been imputed to your Son's righteous, perfect life. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for this example in Solomon of someone who lived their life to the fullest, who did everything far greater and better than we could ever imagine. And we have his example warning us not to do the same thing. We don't have to wonder if these things will bring us happiness or fulfillment because you sent someone who lived that for us as an example, so we don't have to make the same mistake. Help us be diligent that we might be faithful to you, devote our time and our energy and every aspect of our life to you, that we do not waste any of the short time we have on this earth. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.